Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we have our monthly Journal Club edition, where we focus on research articles as the springboard for interviews with authors, educators, as well as clinical experts. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. And in this episode, we're really doing something a little different. We're, we're diverting from our typical journal club roots to really just dig into ACL rehab with the one and only Eric Mira. Our goal today is to learn from him and how he rehabs your typical uncomplicated ACL to really flesh out what is most important when rehabbing these patients, and and what does a full trajectory look like from post-operative care through return to sport? Eric Mira is a physical therapist with over 20 years of experience in sports rehab and is currently serving on the Executive Committee of the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy as their representative at large. He is also the director of the PT Science Communication Group, where he runs the PT Continuing Education Platform, the Science PT, and a monthly PT Journal Club podcast called PT Inquest. He is based in Portland, Oregon, and he regularly consults with athletes, clinics, and sports teams around the world. For more information, check out his website, thesciencept.com. And so without further ado, Chelsea, can you set the scene for us? We have a patient walking in, well, crutching in for the first day of PT post-op ACL reconstruction. We are starting the acute phase. Uh, I want to know what priorities are there in this first phase? What are some of your go-to interventions to address those priorities? And what does the timeline look like for this acute phase? And let's say that you've ruled out any red flags uh, and, and, and any signs of infection. So you're, you're kind of ready to go from that point. So barring that, uh, you know, in that first, uh, the first thing I'm going to look for is a very simple assessment of basic range of motion, pain control. I always ask about, you know, their, their personal situation. Are they well supported? Do they have, you know, family, depending on the level of the athlete, sometimes they have too much support, if you know what I mean? So like really, really high level athletes, a lot of times they have, you know, 40 different people overviewing their case. So getting, getting understanding what that situation really is, getting an idea of where the patient is coming from, what are what is their belief structure would be a very important thing to understand as well. Cause sometimes I'll get a patient in who's like, I love acupuncture. Acupuncture is everything I ever do and it's my life. And, and, and so I'm, I'm going to make sure I don't disrupt that narrative necessarily and make sure that I find a way to fit what I'm doing and what I'm trying to accomplish in with, with their own belief structure. So, you know, then, you know, as far as physical exam, I, I want to see how's that range of motion. As I said before, is it, is it presenting fairly normally? And it's more just to get a baseline for that first day. Uh, typically it's going to be, uh, depending on the surgeon, depending on the patient, I usually say I want to see you as soon as you feel comfortable getting out of your house and coming into a clinic. The really primary thing in the initial phase is that thing just needs to calm down, number one. Range of motion will come back if that knee calms down. You know, I want to get after it as much as I can, but without making the thing really, really angry. Uh, more concerned with extension, you know, with, with ACL in particular, you want to make sure if they had that notch plasty done, there's a good chance that they're, they'll get some scarring in there. So you want that ACL to sit up into that notch to, to occupy space so you don't develop a cyclops lesion. That said, there's not particularly any evidence showing that that will prevent a cyclops lesion. My personal feeling is cyclops lesions happen sometimes, so where you get that ball of crud kind of there in the notch. And um, I've had friends that are physical therapists who specialize in this and had the surgery themselves. 
and they still get the Cyclops lesion. I mean, it's just one of those things that just kind of happens. So I'm going to do everything I can, but I'm also not going to lose sleep over over the presence of one. And then usually I'm going to see them a week later. You know, I'm I'm not a real aggressive person in the in the early phases. I just wanted to calm down and make sure that they're handling their their basic day to day activities. Are are you gaining range of motion? And then usually on that second visit, I'll measure quad or, or leg extension uh, torque. My, my feeling here is it's a long road. I don't need to hog up a bunch of visits early, especially if I'm if I'm limited with that. So the main goals of this acute phase are to get extension and get it to calm down. Besides letting them have some space and time, is there anything else you'd like to do? I'm a big fan of very high elevation. So we put them with their leg up on the on the wall and their hip as close to the wall as possible to, to and still be able to be stable. And then adding more physics to it, we're going to use a compression wrap to that as well. I personally use a, a gel pack, a cold pack under that with an ACE wrap all the way around it to squeeze everything. Not because I think the ice or the cryotherapy is necessarily important, but I find that the patient's going to tolerate that situation much better with the ice. And, and my rule for using ice packs and that kind of thing is if you put it on and after you're done, your knee feels better, then do it because it feels better. I'm the same thing, way with like E-STEM. You want to throw E-STEM on there and it makes them tolerate the, uh, the activity better? I'm all for it. We actually progress them to sitting in a hamstring curl machine, so they're a seated hamstring curl, and we, we lock their leg in. And then the more weight we put on the machine, the more it pushes their leg up into extension and we can grade how much load into extension we put. So I can measure that from week to week by what pin I, where I put the pin on the weight stack. And again, same thing, ice pack, e-stem, whatever's going to make you, you know, I'll sit there and, and sing hymns to you. I don't know. Whatever's going to make you tolerate sitting there in that position for, for longer, to get more stretch, uh, uh, the better. You know, I want that pain feedback. I want them off painkillers for our sessions because I want real-time feedback regarding pain. I don't like the idea of, you know, gork out on painkillers and then come to PT. To, to me, a pain is a very useful tool. And so we have restoring range of motion with a priority towards knee extension, reducing knee effusion, and then also working on quad activation as well, really quieting the knee before moving into that strength phase. Can you talk a little bit more about that transition out of that immediate post-operative phase and how you transition more into that strength building focus? We start taking some baseline assessments on force production, usually in the second visit, which is usually a week or two out from surgery. And then we progressively go from there. So we'll start them with isometrics at that 60 degrees. As the swelling calms down, which I expect swelling to get pretty well controlled uh, in four weeks or so, that that it's well controlled. It doesn't mean that they won't get puffy from time to time, but but well controlled. And and then we start getting progressively, we start doing our progressive loading through that. And there's, there's all this debate about, you know, open kinetic chain, what's safe, what isn't, how much stress is on the graft. And people think, oh, well, you're really aggressive. Uh, I assume you, you would go after full arc open kinetic chain early. And I, my answer is always no. I don't. I think that's not particularly useful for the, the individual because when you look at a forced position curve on the quadricep, you know, it's got, as they'll talk about, a sugar loaf shape. So it's kind of looks like a little mountain as you go from a bent knee to a straight knee, meaning the leg can't generate that much torque when it's 
close to extension, meaning that you're way underloaded. If you're using a weight that they can get through the full range, you're way over underloaded during the heart of the kick. And so to me, I'm going to restrict that range of motion. We usually do go from 100 to 60 degrees. Uh, we dial that up on our ice kinetic machine, but you can easily do it on a leg extension machine as well. Just, just set a block there or just sit there and physically block them. See, and 60 degrees is where the quad generates the most torque or the, or the, the leg extension type motion. And so we'll do a partial arc and I'll load them up as heavy as possible. You know, to me, ideally, the weight is so heavy that they can't get past 40 degrees. Not that I'm actually blocking them. Usually it's much better tolerated down there. They're very comfortable. They don't get the patellofemoral discomfort. And, and I can use much heavier weights than if I were to go to a, to a full arc. Even the most casually engaged PT has heard a, a ton recently about the open versus closed chain or, or partial versus full arc interventions in, in regard to ACL rehab. But it's a, it's a nice reminder that if you're focused on knee extension force, the, the safety argument aside, chasing full arc isn't necessarily really that helpful to your, your goal. So can you talk more about how you get after quad strengthening during this phase of rehab? Yeah. So any, any kind of, you know, leg extension type activity, isometric or, or partial arc is, is going to be key. I think the biggest problem we have when we go into this, when we start talking squats and things like that, the problem with squats and leg press is that those are tasks that they can start to learn how to do without the quadricep. And I'm not a big fan of them learning how to function without a quadricep because they will start to see it as, you know, not, not consciously, obviously, but their body will start to say, Hey, this is a fairly efficient way to get this task done. And the problem is, is when you try to go into a deceleration task, a deceleration task looks a lot like a leg extension when it comes to the biomechanical profile. And so all of a sudden, this person who's learned how to not use their quad is being asked at a very high rate to use their quad in isolation, and it's just not going to be there. And so I worry about them learning those types of strategies. And so we'll do squats, but it's going to be a lot of double leg. I'm not going to bark at them to be equal equal weight distribution, especially if their quad is fairly weak. Uh, I'll let them shift off it as much as they feel like they need to, to, to keep that knee moving forward during the squat. Uh, another trick we do is keep the knee moving forward, but keep the weight shifted back to the heel. That really demands a lot more quadricep from JOSPT. That was a, from Susan Sigward's group where they, uh, they showed that if you just have them squat and all you're doing is making them do an even weight shift. So get weight even on both sides they will start to learn little strategies within that leg by about, you know, three to five months out where they can look like they're symmetrical in their activation, but they're just not asking much from their quads. They've learned little tricks to move that ground reaction force around so that their quads are not being requested uh, to work quite as hard. But to the naked eye, they will look symmetrical and they will look like they, they have a very pretty squat. How long do you typically find yourself really focusing on quad strength for that uncomplicated ACL patient? And what are some of the pitfalls or, or issues that you commonly run into? Honestly, my this is one of the things I keep in the back of my mind. We, we get these patients that it's really common to get them out to about 80% of a quad index. And then uh, I like to use the barbecue analogy. It's like all of a sudden there's a stall. And so barbecuers talk about, you know, they're, they're monitoring the temperature on the meat they've got on the, on the smoker and it'll get to a certain temperature and then it'll sit there for like an hour and a half. 
and then it'll start creeping up again. And that that's what we seem to see personally with our with our athletes is they'll hit and it's usually around 80%. We can get them to 80% and then they're just kind of stuck there for a, a one to five months. I mean, sometimes it's just they're just stuck there forever. And I say, you know, just put your head down, just chop your wood, just keep doing the work. Honestly, I think what's going on there is maybe it's that graft healing. Maybe it's a chondral surface. Something in that knee is saying – I'm not ready quite yet. And then one day they seem to wake up and like over the course of a week, all of a sudden that thing ramps up and and there they are. So, you know, the timeline on that is anywhere from probably between six and nine months where the bulk of people are, are transitioning through that phase. It's not uncommon for that to be closer to 12 months. Quads, quads, quads are the priority for the strength phase. So shocked to hear that from you, Eric Mara the quad king. And you've shared some of your favorite go-tos to achieve that. But what's your criteria to move on to the dynamic phase of more jumping and hopping? If their torque is getting close to 50% of the uninvolved side, well, we can expect that they should look pretty symmetrical doing double leg activities because you're only asking half body weight. It's obviously more complicated because of the rate. So as long as you're going slow, you should be totally fine at 50%. So that's where, you know, we'd be doing squats and that kind of thing like that. As it starts to get up over 75 to 80%, which is still not a good enough We'll start letting them kind of mess around with sport activities because of the specificity of transfer for task being sport, but we'll tell them they need to hold it back to about 50% intensity. And so the idea there is they should have enough capacity to move quote unquote normally or the way they remember moving as long as they don't bring that intensity up too high. So again, it's graded. And as that number goes up and they start getting into 90, 95%, then we really start taking the training wheels off, so so to speak. I like that 50% number. I don't like telling an athlete go 75%. I mean, what is that? Even 50% is kind of abstract and they're probably closer to 70 plus. That's why we want them up closer to 80% before we start having them do those types of things. How do you start this more dynamic phase? What are your favorite things to to start off with? Yeah, so just like squatting and that kind of thing, we'll we'll do double leg before we do single leg, uh, and so we'll do double leg jump. I, you can do it in place. If they're going to do it in place, I want them to land very vertically with their with their trunk so that their knees kind of push forward. The thing that I'm trying to prevent this person from doing is learning how to use a hip strategy to decelerate. The easiest way to to look for a hip strategy is actually to look at the knee. Are they flexing the knee in the sagittal plane or are they not? And so the first thing we'll start with is you're going to jump double leg. When you land, I want you to flex your, use the impact of landing to flex your knees as far as you can, double leg. And then they have to hold that crouch position. And then we, and then the simple biomechanics of it is the farther forward they jump, the more of a request from the quadriceps you're going to get. And so we just progress to longer and longer jumps. Then we bring that back and we do the same thing with a hop. We'll do this in a Smith machine a lot because the Smith machine will keep them vertical, which is what I want them to be. I don't want them, you know, kicking their hip back and flexing at the hip. And so the cue I'll give them is I want you to take your knee and I want you to punch it forward. So punch, 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 and then progressing them further and further and further. And so whenever I'm looking at hops or jumps, I'm looking for knee flexion. Now, some people will say, that's not functional. They're not going to land like that in sport. The the things that happen in the clinic are not going to transfer to sport. I'm trying to make sure that they have the capacity to get down there, that if something during the sport requests 
the need to get into that position, they have the ability to do that. And they're not going to brace into a, a straight knee position to try to get around that, which, you know, the, the best way to tear an ACL is going to a high high load deceleration situation with a knee flex between 20 and 30 degrees. And you're going to, you're going to go into valgus as a shock absorber. You're going to have a bad day. It's like the world's worst sweet spot. Well, what's interesting is if you are at a low speed, that is actually a great strategy to change direction quickly. And so it's not that the strategy is inherently bad. The strategy is bad at high speed. So a high level athlete will actually use that strategy very commonly. And what I think is really interesting is a lot of physical therapists in the clinic will work on fixing that at a low speed as like a training thing for functional transfers. Like the last thing you want them to do is using, using that strategy at a, at a high speed or at a low speed, you want them to learn at full speed how to do, how to, to use that quadricep. They can, as long as they um, can absorb all that energy, it doesn't matter. You know, I think breaking down the hip strategy versus knee strategy is really important because it's, it's easy to, to read something that says, Hey, you know, you need to work on single leg stability and jumping and landing mechanics, but it's also really easy to do that wrong and end up not training what you're intending to train. Breaking that down is really helpful. You can go on Instagram and, and I see these all the time. It's like, here's a great ACL rehab thing. And I'm, I'm just sitting there going, flex the knee. That's just flex that knee during training. Um, and again, not looking for task transfer, looking for capacity building and establishing that, yes, if called upon, it can do it. Now, whether that organism will select that option during sport is such a complicated question that I don't know how qualified we are to answer that in a clinical setting. I don't think it's a great use of time as much as just get them to be able to flex that knee. Those are great go-tos and just like really important principles to keep in mind. Thank you for that. We have reached the final phase, return to sport. I know there's a lot of blending of these two last phases, but hit us with your return to sport expertise what are you looking for priority wise and what do you love to do in this phase to hit those priorities? But yeah, you know, hop test and, and the quad index are, are going to be our main ones, but no hop test before quad is my feeling. I don't like doing hop testing before that. Cause if you think about a hop test, what you're really asking is that person to decelerate, especially when you get to a triple hop. So get up ahead of steam and then stop. But if you are practicing that without an adequate quad, the only way that they can achieve any kind of symmetry is by using a hip strategy. I want to get this person to hit all their capacity numbers by six months. That would be my goal. And this is when I'm starting to say, I'm going to clear you for scrimmaging, for example. We're going to do our hop test. We're going to do a single hop, uh, crossover hop, and triple hop. And we're looking for 90% symmetry. There's all sorts of varying as what's right, what's normal. And then I'm going to use that nine-month reference point to give me three months of exploration. And so I think that's really important that and people miss that is once you clear those those hurdles, I'd love to have, and it's kind of arbitrary, three months or so of getting out there and doing the sport. And so what the way it will do our return process is once they get up over 90% or so, and again, I'm just looking at that five-second isometric hold. That's got the most research behind it. It's the easiest one to test. It's the easiest one to put forward. So once they get that, that 90% quad index from that situation – and I'm going to say, go ahead and do your sport-specific drills. I don't want you doing a lot of high-speed change of direction, but you can do things at low speed. And I want you to try to imagine that there's a very low ceiling where you are, and you're going to stay kind of in a crouch with your knees flexed. 
So I want it to be exaggerated. And so that's a drill we have them do in the clinic. They have to get up on their toes and then bend their knees and keep their trunk upright. And then they just kind of move around like that. And I I joke at them. I'm like, if I show up at your basketball game and you're on the court doing this, I'm going to smack you because this is not the way you should move. But I'm trying to put a little bit. It's like wearing a weighted vest. I'm just trying to put a little bit of a challenge down to that. So let them do drills like that. And then we progress them from drills to I want you doing some non-contact scrimmage. And then going to full contact scrimmage. And then they come back and report to me. And I I say, you know, I'll I'll tell them before they go out there. I'm like, feel around. If something feels weird or wrong, explore it. So try to figure out why does it feel weird and and in what way specifically. Because then when they come back, a lot of times what they'll say is, what I notice is if I plant with my foot in this position and I try to make this kind of move, I feel like I'm slow. Or I feel like I'm uncomfortable or I feel hesitant. All right, well, let's explore what the biomechanics underneath that would be. Is it because the quad isn't producing at the right rate? Is it, you know, what what's going on here? We can break this down and try to figure that out. Or is it a matter of, well, here's a little drill that kind of recreates that. Let's just start practicing so you get comfortable with that exact load profile. And then once you're comfortable with it, you're comfortable with it. That three months ties in a lot with like the, just like a load progression, that like acute to chronic load ratio as well. Okay. so. We hit the timeline and the priorities, the timeline, which is a non-answer timeline, which is totally fair. Priorities, favorite go-tos, and then criteria to move on. So that is our classic average ACL from post-op strength building to dynamic to sport. Eric, is there anything else we missed in there that you are like, oh yeah, I, I am typically excited about this and I want to mention it. Yeah, I would say that getting them, bringing them back a month later after they're, they're returned. Uh, and so again, in our ideal situation, they're going to return to scrimmaging. And again, you've got that quad. That's number one. Now go mess around for about a month and then come back and let me see what your quad index is doing. Now I mentioned before, I may see that their uninvolved side has risen. And I, I, okay, we got incomplete rehab. We got to go back after it. But I may see that the uninvolved side didn't change, but the involved side dropped. And I will say anecdotally, we see this fairly common with that second ACL reconstruction or third. And what I am concerned about is when they went back the first time, they learned hip strategies for function. Then I can bring them back. I bring that quad up and I send them back out there for a month. They've gone back to using a hip strategy. And they're not using their quad, so that quad is just not being asked to be very strong, and we see it drop. And again, this is all just speculation as to what we're seeing here, but that's something that I'm going to pick up on and go, okay, let's get that quad back up, and now we're going to do some – if they're a basketball player, I'm going to get them on the court, and we're going to start doing some some specific movement training, which you'll notice – I didn't talk about that through the whole process – I only pull that out if I feel like this person needs it. A lot of times what I find is if it's primary ACL reconstruction, they have no history of a previous one. If you restore all the baselines, usually they go back and they look not they look good. But if they've learned a new strategy because of a previous ACL injury that was not rehabbed correctly or, or completely, and then I get them back again, I want to double check that they're not selecting that hip strategy just out of convenience. And there's tricks we use like with our basketball players. Uh, we'll have them – we'll make them like cut at an angle underneath the basket. They have to go under the basket and then jump up and grab the rim. So it's forcing them to decelerate with a vertical body when the only way they can do that is by getting those quads to engage and then explode up vertically like that. I know they have the capacity to do it. I just need to start to show them that this is a viable option on the court 
uh, themselves. That's one example of, of things that we would do, but it's always court driven with strategies that don't have them thinking about their knee. It has them thinking about the tasks that they're trying to do, get them outside their body as much as possible. And so I think that wraps our whirlwind tour from post-operative care through return to sport. Eric, thank you so much for walking us through that. You know, your podcast, PT Inquest, has been a fixture of continuing education for me, even since actually I was in since I was in PT school. So it is truly something special to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you guys. This has been this has been great. And lastly, we'd like to thank physical therapist Alex Brindley for his help with developing this episode. And as always, thank you all for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.